Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language, including racial slurs spoken by the characters within the film that some listeners may find offensive. Today, as part of our throwback series, we'll be discussing Full Metal Jacket, starring Matthew Modine. Now let me see your war Let me see your real warfare. Ah! You don't scare me. Work on it. Vincent D'Onofrio. You are dumb, Private Pavicki. You expect me to believe that you don't know left from right? Sir, no, sir. Then you did that on purpose. You want to be different. Adam Baldwin. Well, shut your head, you new guy. Think we waste scoops for freedom? This is a slaughter. Alice Howard. I hate Vietnam. There's not one horse in this whole country. I don't have one horse in Vietnam. There's something basically wrong with that. <laughs> and Ollie Yearney. Your rifle is only a tool. It is a hard heart to kill. Directed by Stanley Kubrick. Joker, I've told you we run two basic stories here. Grunts who give half their pay to buy gooch toothbrushes and deodorants. Winning of hearts and minds, okay? And combat action that results in a kill. Winning the war. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. I'm your senior podcaster. From now on, you'll speak only when spoken to, and the first and last words out of your filthy sewers will be sir. It's Gally in Glasgow. <laughs> uh, approximately five feet nine inches of stacked shit. It's Devlin in London. Misa Hani is Patrick from London. <laughs> Jelly donut. How did it get here? It's Matt in South Korea. Oh, Patrick. <laughs> I, I guess I win. I win the money because I think I was the one that had bet on that line. <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> welcome back, gang, and welcome back, listeners, to another episode of the Rewind Movie Podcast. Another throwback episode, and uh, and today, Matt, it's your choice. And uh, I guess it's all part of our 2021 resolution that we'll be a, a real adult movie podcast. We're tackling a Kubrick film. Which one are we doing, Matt? We're doing his penultimate film, uh, Full Metal Jacket from 1987. Kubrick seasons have sort of been on TV all of my life. They're usually on Channel 4. Um, now we kind of curate our own, I suppose, by you know using streaming and stuff like that. But um, I remember when I first saw this one, I'd never seen a film that was so symmetrical. It was really neat and tidy and orderly. And I'd, I'd never seen something that was so meticulously designed and clinical, like the first half in particular. And uh, it kind of set it apart from other films that I'd seen. Um, and I think that there's, it's been critically misunderstood as a recruitment film at first and like i think we'll probably get into some of the nuances about why that happened and um as with other kubrick films it was really dense and complex and i feel like i needed time to to assess it and and to kind of grow into it in a way because i was too young when i saw it i was probably 12 or 15 when i first saw it on on telly um, was this your first kubrick film it probably was um I, I can't, I can't pinpoint exactly, but it's it, this one and The Shining are my top two Kubricks, and they're probably the easiest to access, really, for a younger 
person. But yeah, it was it was one of these Kubrick seasons, probably Channel Four. Um, but it was one of these films that grabs you immediately, um, and I couldn't switch it off. Um, it happened with The Fly. Um, back then, we talked about that on the Fly podcast. It was very similar the way I kind of first saw it. Uh, I remember the next day at school, other people had seen it, and uh, they were quoting it. And it, these kind of lads who didn't really detect what it was about, I think they were kind of just spouting the racist dialogue and, uh, you know, we're, we're probably going to chuck a few quotes out there today, but it's honestly, it's all coming from a good, a good place. You know, these lads were, were really kind of misunderstanding it and singing the Mickey Mouse song in a, in a way that was kind of, um, uh, evidence that they hadn't grasped what was going on. Uh, but I, and I remember not joining in, even though I didn't fully understand the film. Um, I remember not joining in with the quotes and just kind of listening to them and, and knowing that there was, there was something about it, about what they were doing that, that was kind of wrong. Um, but I, I remember taking a bit of a stand, just a, a silent kind of stand. And we've seen it since, like the, there's been hits based on like quotes from the films that the two live crew yeah. and songs about big asses and, you know, it, these things don't really go together, but, um, uh, it's kind of peculiar. There's another one. I want to be a drill instructor that actually came from, from Kubrick's daughter who, who made that one and put it on the soundtrack that got to number two in the charts, I think, but it's an odd <laughs> film to make hit records out of. But, yeah. Yeah. And anyway, that's, that was my first, first experience. How about you, uh, Chris, what was your first uh, experience with full metal jacket? Um, I think this was probably the first Kubrick film I saw as well. Um, and not one that I've, I've seen a, a ton, but, um, much like you, I think one that was, was watched too young, not fully, um, absorbed and one that I now know mostly through the kind of the divorced, um, inappropriate, uh, uh, kind of memification of it. So, um, uh, yeah, it was, it was a, a film that for some reason there was a bunch of like Vietnam films around on video in my mum's house specifically that I remember like, so I would watch this platoon casualties of war. What's the Tommy Lee Jones one? Is it, uh, heaven and earth? Heaven and earth. Yeah. That's an Oliver yeah, Stone yeah. one too, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, and born on the 4th of July. That's quite why you're watching that all the time i was like uh i just yeah i remember like um it's obviously like all the all the fun videos were at my dad's place and then like at my mom's place for some reason like a more serious like lots of like gritty war type films and and we'd watch them and uh yeah you end up kind of um i think you absorb if you're in the wrong place you absorb some weird lessons from it all but um so yeah a, a, an odd one um that it had been a long time since I'd seen it. And I think we'll probably talk about the, the, the very famous structure of it, but the first half of the film came flooding back to me in weirdly, weirdly clear detail. And then the second half was like watching it again for the first time. By, by, by the time we got to the end of the film, I literally didn't remember what happened. So that was, uh, that was quite interesting as an experience. How about you, Patrick? Very similar, Devlin. Um, I really remembered the first half. Uh, I've, I watched it twice this week. You're ready for this, uh, this chat, Matt. Um, and that's the second and third time I've ever seen it. I've only seen it once before. It, it was something I remember like in the playground 
um mm. when i was in primary school kids kind of quoting and especially the line um i bet i bet you're the kind of guy who would fuck a person in the ass and not even the goddamn courtesy to give him a reach around i remember that in the playground from kids like finding that hilarious and quoting that and and i i even remember when i was younger playing along as though i knew it but even though i hadn't because i wasn't allowed to watch this film but um Mm. I think I saw it when I was university age, like 20, 21, I think. Uh, because uh, again, I've spoken about this before, but it's one of those films that's on your watch list as a, stu- a film student, or if you've got an interesting film, it's, you know, it's a, it's a Kubrick's films are quite, um, you've got to see this. Um, and I, I definitely remember the first half more than the second half. The first 45 minutes, the, the, the everlasting scene, uh, memory of it was, um, Pyle's, uh, moment in the bathroom, shall I call it? I, I remember that with proper clarity when I saw it, you know, like I almost knew it off my heart for some reason, because I think it was that, um, it, it left that impression on me, that scene. And the second half, I, I just what is it about that Devlin? I just couldn't remember the second half at all, and mm. I I didn't know what was coming. And we'll probably unpack yeah. that because um, yeah. that is the general the general rule of thumb with this one. Well, I, well, I said to Lev, uh, remember, remember Lev? He came to the Arnie all night. I I said to him, "Oh, we, we're discussing Full Metal Jacket this weekend," and he, his immediate comment was, "Ah, the film of two halves." I was like, "Oh, right, okay." Mm. Like, and I didn't remember it that way, but. Yeah, it was fascinating. Well, we'll try and we'll we'll maybe try and um, uh, see if we can shed any light onto why that is. Maybe look at the the structure and the characters and some of the reasons why the first half seems to resonate and and has has lived on, and the second half, as you say, it falls into obscurity slightly. Did you have the same experience as well, Bengali? Absolutely. This is the first Kubrick film I'd ever seen. Um, and I then went and I remember the order because I'd seen Full Metal Jacket. I then watched Clockwork Orange. These are all way too young, by the way. Um, and are very similar to Matt and, and what all of you have described and Patrick, where you, you watch it and your, your little brain is not quite old enough yet to, to fully comprehend what Kubrick's probably trying to do. Um, so you just take it at surface level. And it was interesting, Matt, what you mentioned about, uh, this being almost seen as a recruitment tool, you know, it starts to hark back to when we discussed Top Gun and, and that old thing called military entertainment complex. Um, which I think for our next episode, spoilers listeners, which will be, uh, a, a listener pick, which is The Rock. We will probably get into it in more detail because Michael Bay is very guilty of the military entertainment complex. But this one, I absolutely didn't see that. But maybe as a kid, I probably did because it's recruit training and, and that first half does make a real lasting impression. I think the performances have something to do with it, but sandwiches will remain in the box. Um, the second half, just like, just like you, Devlin, like I'd forgotten where it went, what happens, why are we here? Um, and I very much lumped this one into the, ah, this is just, you know, every filmmaker making a Vietnam film in the eighties and early nineties. Cause that was just a thing. But, um, coming back to it was, uh, a real 
this one has sat with me all week since I watched it. So I'm very much looking forward to getting into it. Matt, would you uh, be so kind as to provide us with a, with a plot summary, please? Sure. Paris Island, the sixties, the salty U.S. Marine Corps grunts of 3092 are put through the basic training ringer by stern and ruthless drill instructor, Gunnery Sergeant Hartman. Among others, the tubby feckless private pile, the wisecracking but gutsy private joker, and the Texan private cowboy must negotiate vig- vigorous physical and mental scenarios in an attempt to become born again hard, which proves too much for Pyle, who despite Hartman's bollockings and blanket party whackings from his fellow pukes, goes full section eight and ends up wasting both Hartman and himself on their final night. Following graduation in Da Nang, Mickey Spillane wannabe war correspondent Sergeant Joker and his green combat photographer buddy Rafterman as part of Stars and Stripes, a US military paper, are reunited with Cowboy and his new posse, the Lust Hog Squad. Whilst trekking across enemy terrain amid the Battle of Hue, their platoon gets lost between checkpoints and is ambushed by an unseen Vietnamese sniper. Upon discovering it is a lone adolescent girl, Rafterman guns her down, mortally wounding her, leaving Joker to perform a mercy killing, which finally earns him his thousand yards there. And so that was the bit that was completely, had completely uh, slipped my mind. Everything that happened, the the fact that they were under fire from a sniper, the the elongation of that last period as well, like the the, the drawing out of the time. I guess like yeah. that's one of the, the, the really interesting things about this film, that there's no compression of time. When The further you get into the shit, the longer it keeps you there without without giving you the 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 common courtesy of a of an edit (laughs) (laughs) yeah the the structure is the most important thing like um that not the most important thing that the most um one of the most interesting things about it and one of the biggest talking points um i think like the people who reject the second half are people who really want to be spoon-fed a point of view um it, it we'll probably get into it more later but it's a film without too much of a moral center and it, that's kind of asking for trouble, I think, uh, critically. Um, but, um, yeah, the, the, the first half is what people remember. And the second half has, has become this very abstract thing that, uh, unless you rewatch it a lot, like I do, um, you, you tend to just remember the beginning. Uh, is, is this why that. you picked him? Is that the reason? Yeah. Um, it, it partly, yeah, because I, again, sandwiches, I, I don't think it's, uh, appreciated as much as it could be. In terms of Kubrick's work, people tend to put it towards the bottom uh, of the list or not quite as high as it, as I think it should be. It's my top two. Uh, the Shining is arguably my favorite film. Like I, I always say Jaws and The Shining are up there because they're the ones that I just love and rewatch a lot. But Full Metal Jacket, and instead of picking The Shining to talk about Kubrick, I thought th- this one would be better because I wouldn't wax his car so much. Um, and I, I, there's still a lot to disagree with. Um, with, with this film, there's a lot of talking points, but it, yeah, one of the reasons for picking it was to, to explore that second half because I don't know if anyone really knows the meaning of it and if Kubrick really, really knew, mm. but we can, we can perhaps look, look at what it, what it perhaps could mean and, and what we took from it. You know, let's tackle that second part right now or, or what we believe is the reason why the structure of the film seems to have, um, meant that the the general consensus is that it's a film of two halves and the first half is better. I mean, one of the things that I'd I'd kind of noted down when I was watching it again 
was the first 45 minutes is so clean as in, even though the characters are kind of ill-defined, you know, they're only defined by their, by their nicknames, Snowball, Joker, uh, Cowboy, uh, Pile, etc. This, there is a clear antagonist, which is Gunnery Sergeant Hardman. Uh, he is to say, if you wanted to be clean in storytelling, he's your villain. Although we, we've already talked about how it's been slightly misread as actually he's quite funny and, uh, we want more from him. Um, whereas in the second half, because it's so, it, they don't have a mission. So normally in a war film, you'd, you'd have a, a hill to take, or if you get that bunker, then that will destroy the enemy stronghold and you'll be able to push forward. They don't give you any of that. I think uh, when Cowboy is advancing, when he's taking charge, he's just like, well, we'll just get to the next checkpoint, which is where? It's just somewhere else further ahead. There is no objective for them to really take other than keep pushing forward. It sets up the the, the hopelessness of what you're talking about. There's a discussion that goes on in, uh, is it like the editor's room where his, his, his superior, Joker's superior officer is telling him about the war being unwinnable at this point. And, uh, he says that the embassy has been overrun by suicide bombers and, uh, the, the morale is very low and that's why their job was particularly important at that time. So one, once you get to the bit where cowboys lost and they don't, they're, they're trekking through ruins that they don't even know where they are. Um, it, it, there's just a hopelessness to it. And, and again, that, that perhaps taps into Vietnam. I, I mentioned to you off air galley about, I was, I was trying to learn more about the Vietnam War. I watched Hearts and Minds. Um, the documentary f- that it won the Oscar in 1974 it was very harrowing, but quite revealing. Uh, if a little, um, uh, it was just totally anti- anti-war basically, but it, it does it by juxtaposing the, the Vietnamese perspective with the American perspective. And she goes back and forth all the way through. Uh, in, 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 it's kind of like a, an early Michael Moore. I know Michael Moore was obsessed with, with that film and it was one of the reasons he went on to make documentaries, but it's, it's, it's a little bit more, um, challenging than more stuff and and then the ken burns documentary the vietnam war has 15 hours of stuff that i've been trying to get through but it's it's very very heavy but that confusion and and um hopelessness is probably arguably all connected to what the vietnam war ultimately was too maybe well i was gonna say it's interesting that uh you mentioned the hearts and minds um makes its uh uh or, or has its impact based on uh, juxtaposing the two perspectives because it's when I was saying that I watched a bunch of Vietnam war films as a kid for some reason um, mm. it's uh, notable by its absence the idea of actually exploring what the Vietnamese people were going through the the this film specifically has has no context no political context you hear about it in the background um, platoon is largely about the um the war for Charlie Sheen's soul, I guess, between the two opposing forces in the army. And then uh, casualties of war, I just remember being like very harrowing and just kind of uh, uh, almost like painfully exploitative about the kind of the viciousness and the de- and the dehumanization that this film kind of uh, talks about. But in, in that one, it's far more kind of upfront and and it's it's there to kind of jolt you as more of a kind of emotional cattle prod whereas this is is kind of the opposite which is like um i don't know i've always thought it was like kubrick is like a trafalmadorian does anyone ever read like slaughterhouse five there's um there's a 
in Slaughterhouse Five, there's a uh, it's 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 a war novel written by Kurt Vonnegut, and it's about a, a time traveler. He's like a shit soldier. He's like the worst soldier in the army. He loses his shoes. He's useless, and uh, he comes loose in time, and he ends up going to a uh, an alien planet called Trafalmador, where he's put in a human zoo. Uh, the Trafalmadorians are a race of alien beings that can see in five dimensions at once. And I always think of Kubrick like that, like he sort of, he just sort of fucks with us. Like he's, yeah. sort of, we're like a little, a uh, little human zoo for him. Yeah. So, I, I do think you, you mentioned casualties of war there, which is like overtly about uh, the abuse that happened and the rapes and uh, mm. things like that. But I think Kubrick is tackling that stuff. Uh, we can argue about whether this is a Vietnam film or it, or whether it's just a war film in general, because I think there's a case for that. But I think he's um, he's using allegory more than just being explicit about it. Um, there's some stuff in there that does reference uh, rape and abuse, and I think he's he's doing the same thing, but he's doing it in a in a more Kubrickian way with it with his allegories. When you first saw it, Patrick, did you? Um, did you remember the second half? Like when you revisited it, was it familiar no, to you? Uh, fuck all. Um, I, I don't, it, I, I get annoyed at things like that because why didn't I remember the second half? Cause, um, all the reviews and for the research for today, I read about the film. There seems to be a general consensus in like Lev saying film of two halves. He, even he was saying the second half was, um, he found boring. He, he said, I was like, Oh, well, when did you rewatch mm. it? Yeah, Cause the second half, I, I wanted to pay particular attention to you for this conversation. Cause all the reviews are that I read, um, uh, your friends, uh, your friend Ebert as well, Matt. Yeah. You know, <laughs> <always laughs> you mentioned the second half, um, loses its way it loses its focus um, but i find i've i've got um a, sorry go on i've got a pauline kale one for when you when you're finished with the critic stuff i've got a little bit of, go on, go on. of what she do said it down do it down yeah pauline kale's um review I, I find myself agreeing with a lot of it but um i, I was just i was struggling to argue with it but she thinks it's kubrick's worst film which i don't agree with she called the first half a cartoonish horror show uh, she said one of the scarier aspects of the book is that joker changes when he decides to to beat pile um and that that doesn't r- appear to happen so much in the film that there's like that this dark racist killer emerges um due to like the brainwashing and uh we have to deal with that as he does at the same time so the book has more of that the short timers by uh, gustav hasford um there's it's it's too hard for her to get an emotional reading on the second half the, the human reprogramming she felt like he'd done in Clockwork Orange, like, like better in that movie. Um, even though here it's kind of rever- reversed. He, he's a deviant that's turned into, uh, you know, a, a more upstanding member of society. And here these, these 18 year old kids are, are turned into killers. Um, Kubrick doesn't allow Joker to be the killer that he's described as in the book and the arc suffers because of that. Um, she also didn't like that Kubrick being an expat was now attacking America, apparently. Um, and, uh, so, so that was one of the issues that she had. I'm going to argue against the point of, um, making the, making Joker's journey like, st- like story beated. One of the things that I really quite, f- I quite enjoyed about the film is 
the moral ambiguity through his own character. I think the, the, the line that I keep going back to is when Animal Mother says, you talk the talk, but do you walk the walk? And throughout the whole film, he's, he, he's conflicted the, the stuff when he's, that it's a bit of a Doctor Strange love scene when the colonel chastises him for the peace button, but with Born to Kill on his helmet. He, he, he thinks he's above it all. He thinks that he, when he challenges his, his lieutenant at Stars and Stripes, when he doesn't believe in the Virgin Mary, but actually he always regresses to the sheep mentality of the programming. I, I disagree with Pauline Kale because I thought, I think if you make Joker that like clean and obvious, almost like Charlie Sheen in Platoon, he was an upstanding member and then look what this war turned him into. Then the perspective ends up being the Vietnam War was bad, wasn't it? Look what it did to our guys. Whereas Kubrick's point is, look what we do to our soldiers before they even get to war. They're already lost their innocence. I think you take away all the power from that, don't you? It makes it a, a, a more universal point as well. It's, it's, it's not just about this war ruined this generation which I think is probably what the majority of the Vietnam War films that, it's like we were saying, basically every major director of the 70s, by the time they got to the 80s, had their Vietnam movie and they all had their own little, very specific takes on it. But uh, maybe maybe not so much Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now was a, 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 a very different beat. Well, he recreated Vietnam, didn't he? He re- recreated the madness of it and he went mad himself. And yeah. Uh, that was more, that was, yeah, that was that very kind of about thing. megalomania, wasn't it really? I mean, if by the time you get yeah, to yeah. Kurtz's compound, it doesn't really have to be taking place in Vietnam. No, but back to Gally's point, like, um, the idea that Joker can be converted is like the ultimate. Uh, I, I think it's not an accident that they named his character after the, uh, his, his character is called JT Davis. You see it on the back of his shirt. I think it's Jonathan, maybe. And, uh, that was the name of the first soldier who is uh, James T. Davis, who was the, the first recorded uh, casualty of Vietnam. Um, so they, he's named after the first American soldier that that, that died in Vietnam. So, uh, And the fact that he's kind of an intellectual too, if he can be turned, then uh, who, who among us probably um, could get through that boot camp and... Um, retain our humanity and uh, the other the other reason i really i'm kind of weirdly obsessed with it is because i picture myself and how i would cope in that situation and like back in the day i'd like to think i would have been a, a joker or a or a cowboy but now i think i'd fall into the pile category of things i'm not sure i'd be able to get over some <laughs> of those obstacles infantry. i think uh and, and who knows back back in the day i think maybe i could have got up there but yeah you know, now you start to question it don't you like how would you react in those situations and, and that's kind of a terrifying aspect yeah, of the film. and you're a footlocker no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. especially yeah. in a conscription war as well which is you know and is is awful just like the sheer numbers of of men that were put through that that ringer which you know mm. yeah not a chance. Not a chance for me. No. I'm too squishy. No. <laughs> no. Well, and, the, and the other one, yeah. well, Matt, is when you say you put yourself in that situation. I know we, we were going to tackle the second half first and the first half last, but, um, you know, when, when they all turn on pile, I mean, that's a, that is a completely human reaction. You know, if you're being punished for somebody else's mistakes, you can understand it, even though it's, it's so cruel. Um, you know, we've seen it how many times in all different forms of literature, you know, it reminded me of Lord of the Flies. That's, yeah. Uh, just 
it's just that, yeah, that same mentality of the, the week will be exercised. And I hate to bring it into topical, you know, modern day ales that we're all living through, but look at how many, you know, idiots talk about, well, just let the, the vulnerable just pass and let us get on with our own lives mm-hmm. in relation to the current pandemic that we're living in. So it kind of does speak to that herd mentality of, well, if there's an individual that's not cutting the mustard, just then everyone will dogpile in. And it's, yeah. it was horrible to watch. It's also, it's a really immature response. And because of like the, you know, the, the fact that they're all dressed in the, like the matching white t-shirts and the bunk beds and they got a bedtime. It just like, it made me think of like, um, uh, what's the, the, uh, 1960s boarding school? Is it if? If with Malcolm yeah, McDowell. Like that or, uh, like you said, Lord of the Flies. These are children. Or an Alan Clark, like a scum or, or, uh, something like yeah. that. Yeah. So it's institutionalization, but also institutionalization amongst people who are emotionally immature and their response mm-hmm. is to, is to whack him with bits of soap and it's fucking horrifying. I'd, it, I had remembered that scene extremely clearly and it is like. <laughs> And and uh, D'Onofrio's performance there is particularly good. Uh, he just the way he says "ow" and he, he's re- regressed completely. And the, the way he's sleeping before they do the blanket party, he's kind of got his stomach out and he's kind of uh, he's like a baby there. There's there's a whole thing tied into it, recreating the family. You know, with with Hartman being being the father and uh, Joker well. being the mother. Mm. Yeah, it makes him suck his thumb. Like he's got his, um, his trousers down and, um, like Joker is the mother too. He's like the maternal side. He's dressing yeah. him. And, uh, it, it, Hartman even says to him, he'll, he'll teach you how to pee and stuff like that. It's, it's all tied into th- this broken family, family well, we unit. A, we have an yeah. extraordinary, uh, introduction to everyone, don't we? With, with, with the shaving of the heads and the, um, goodbye, my sweetheart. Hello, Vietnam dehumanizing these people which is we start off with that statement well they're they're shaving their heads and it's removing their identity isn't it or their their personality but i'd patrick i'd forgotten how goofy that first scene was with the music playing and like their their faces and the hair i mean i i sat offline to devlin that could have been in stripes with bill murray like that opening scene was played almost not for laughs but to know what happens straight after like it's such a juxtaposition from like kind of like breezy patriotic song going on in the background with their heads getting shaved to well early me just uh coming in like a yeah. fucking bolt of lightning well the, mu- the musical choices are, are deliberate aren't they they're quite um yeah uh, very ironic ironic yeah but in the yeah. Uh, just just to sort of talk more about Joker, um, there are from the score perspective rather than the soundtrack, there there's that the repeated motif of the music from the soap scene, from the soap beating, 
from uh, Pyle's scene in the bathroom and at the end with the sniper, mm-hmm. it's the same musical beat from the score that's telling, you know, it's very ominous and unnerving about, it's, it's all about Joker, really. I know we have Pyle a lot in the first half, but those musical uh, um, beats tell me that it's this film's about Joker on the whole, right? Well, some people think that that theme is an abuse yeah, thing. Yeah, it seems um, like it plays, because it plays yeah. at the end as well. So he's being abused with with the the bars of soap and the in the towels, and at the end, um, it's more of an allegorical abuse scene. Some people view it as a gang mm-hmm. rape at the end with the with the sniper. Um, the way that Rafter Man, after he shoots her, is kind of thrusting. I get the abuse, but I also think it's it's definitely the state of mind of Joker because there are all the scenes of Joker's uh, hesitation, his trepidation of war and what his role, role How is. How he pauses before he hits Pyle is, is really interesting. It's like, cause Pyle's the, he's the only one that Pyle sees because Pyle is kind of gagged and he's staring up and, and because Joker hesitates, Pyle has time to turn his head and it's a face to face moment between the two of them when he whacks him and he hits him a few yeah. more times he than some to, of the others. He's yeah, yeah, the most damaged. And the guy who's holding him down says, uh, do it, Joker. So he hears, it's the only name he hears. And at the end, I, I do like the mirroring of, of that for Joker. At the end, he, I think, um, Hartman says something about if you, if you, uh, if you don't have the killer instinct or if you hesitate or anything, something like that when he's training them. And at the end with the sniper, mm-hmm. it's exactly what he does. And it's exactly that hesitation mirrored again that he did with the soap with pile. I, I, yeah. I love the, uh, I was really struck the, the second time around with the, you know, when he speaks to the, the door gunner about yeah. how can yeah. you shoot? women or children and he does that at the end i think that there's a really remarkable uh and, and rafterman is just vomiting next yeah. to him as well and he's involved in the yeah. whole thing it's all tied, it's, tied i think it's very forward. clever that way especially when you read that uh d- didn't kubrick invite all the cast into his trailer and said how can i finish this film how do you want it to do yeah, that was the ending in particular but that door gunner was the original uh drill instructor it, it's Tim Colcheri, I think it's, it's pronounced, and he was actually cast, but but uh, Hartman came, uh, sorry, uh, Ali Ermi came in as as a real advisor and uh, just stole the role out from from under him. He was so so good. Kubrick just had him. That scene is is one of those ones where we're talking about the uh, things being taken out of context and uh, appropriated for a bit of a meme. So I remember running around with, like you were saying, playing army with like sticks. And saying like, get some. And I'd forgot that that was even from this yeah. film. And then I was watching it and because that scene is ridiculous, like the way it's presented that he's just there with his enormous, like, uh, biceps out, just kind of shooting out of a window. And you don't know what you don't see what he's shooting at. So he's like, get some. So it just seems like a, mm. this is like a, a lampooning of the, of the ridiculous bravado and machismo. And then when you see the reverse shot, it's like, Jesus. Christ, like he's mowing down innocent well, people in a field and i'd forgot that and i thought it's kind of mad that we'll all run around saying get some as if it's like a like a lark and it's horror well this is kind of what kubrick was doing it's his answer to rambo apparently the second one the, the part two first blood part two um he, he felt like films were going in that direction and there was no responsibility in terms of, of what was happening with the violence in in films 
And again, you can tie all this into propaganda and, and advertising, which he studied and used. If you, there's another video, um, translating all of the signs, all of the Vietnamese signage in the film and the meanings of meanings behind that, which is, I, we probably shouldn't go into it. It's too, it's too diverse, but, um, the, there's stuff about, um, photocopies and things like that. This idea that Vietnam wasn't really Vietnam. Uh, it was filmed in England and, uh, he's hinting to what, He's always like commenting on what he's doing secretly through the signage. So anyone who wants to go that deep can go down that, that rabbit hole. But, um, from what you were saying before, it's like an answer to that gung ho attitude. I think he's trying to, to pre- prevent, to present something that's a bit more honest about what war really, really it's is. It's definitely a sober look, isn't it, Matt? Um, th- throughout it's, it's all we spoke about kind of, have we like, it's loose plotting in this film. It's more observation and, and just, yeah. Even when I don't remember the character's name, but the, the dude who introduces us to the dead Vietnamese soldier and he says, it's his party and he honors them. And he says, it, when he yeah. dies from the, uh, booby trap, it's just it's so like fucking hell. That just happened. There's no build up. Mm. There's no, it, it's all very, I don't know how to describe it. Um, matter of fact and blunt. It's the way he's gone and now Cowboy's yeah. the captain. It's that it happens incredibly yeah, quickly. Yeah. I think um, that's key. Like how, how this film is. It's just, this is especially the second half, like boom, 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 boom without too much, uh, to, to, to think about. It just happens. And I think. I definitely saw this as a film that Kubrick just was more interested in not the war film, but the actuality of people and how it affects them and what, what human nature uh, as opposed to, as we said, the political context of the war, which we do get from the journalist scenes, but talking of like repeated motifs and, uh, and things, did any of you pick up on the Mickey Mouse repetition in this film i did i did because i was trying to um, i was trying to unpack it you're obviously wondering okay so what is kubrick trying to say and then when you go back and watch the film again there are a couple of references yeah. to mickey mouse uh Hart and piles in the what is this mickey mouse shit yeah what is this mickey mouse bullshit and then when joker is speaking with the lieutenant in the first stars and stripes mm-hmm. meeting which is again kind of very strange lovey in the, in the way that they're discussing yeah. the war there's two mickey mouse statues uh little um toys just behind joker in the in the back and he's in another meeting you- in that room as well and you can see that both the mickey mouse things are very deliberately um moved and placed either side of his head as well yeah. and then and i i was I was wondering what the semiotics were about mm. it, but the the only thing I could come up with without doing any deep diving was that they were trying to go back to a place that was, you know, after they've just done a mercy kill and they've just lost all their friends, they're all, the, the one thing that they can all share is their love of Disney, I guess. That's all I could come up with was them singing something joyful in amongst what is, as Joker describes it, a world of shit. Is, it, is there anything... With their youth, like, uh, yeah, you know, like I said, they were taken out of most of these. Was the the average age of the soldier in the Vietnam War was a no 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 nineteen? No 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 nineteen. I also think they are all these questions going to be about war. I also think they 
that the Mickey Mouse thing is related to Disney from a conformist point of view. So you conform mm-hmm. to Disney, you you buy into that, and the the lyrics of that song, like who's the leader of the, I can't remember what it was, Mickey, Gang, Mickey the club that's made yeah. for you and me. I I mm. I have to see it as Joker's conformity to to Warren to becoming that soldier that that uh, Pyle was and became. He he eventually became like the soldier where Joker never was and. I don't see it as a mercy killing, Gally. I, I I didn't actually read it that way. I didn't. No, I know. I don't. I think it would have been in a normal in a normal film, Patrick. Mm. That's what I was saying earlier. In a normal film, that would have been the right the moral quandary of you've just taken down an enemy. No matter what war soldiers are then conflicted. What do you do? Obviously, if you go by the Geneva Convention, mm-hmm. then you are to you are to try and preserve life. But in all these films, and again, it's a bit of a trope, which is why I think the film gets knocked in the second half, because you're like, well, I've seen this before. But Kubrick does something different. He takes that power away mm-hmm. when they have the discussion, which is uh, she's she's no more boom, boom for her. It's like, woof, that's a bit like, you know, she's one, it's a girl, young girl. She's on mm-hmm. her own uh, and they're all standing over it. And it's the bit where an animal mother Fuck says, it. you've got no more friends now. So waste it, go on. He takes that power away because Joker was looking for someone to tell him to do it. And it's like, no, the, the right thing to have done there is kill her. It's not until Joker shows the hesitation. I think Animal Mother pounces on it because there's a big thematic thing in the film of bullying. And I think Animal Mother becomes what Hartman was. And, you know, he takes power from saying, do it, you know, goading him almost because I even read there was some sort of alternative ending where um, Animal Mother chops off her head, you know, to to, to, to yeah. display it and say. That's why he has a machete all on his back all through the movie because he uses it at the end. Well, he even says in his interview, uh, Patrick, you're right because he when they're interviewing them in Huey, yes, he, they're talking yeah. about freedom, and he says, "I'm not killing, I'm not killing for freedom, I'm killing for Poontang." You know, he's just he's not there for any. Hmm. My word would be that, but and again, equating sex and killing—it's uh, crazy you know, the it, sexualization it of the weapons, isn't it? Out. Because, well, yeah, I, what is Kubrick trying to say there? There's, I don't think there's a—it's—it's it's Devlin's um, Top Gun theory. The, in Top Gun, it's not so—it's it, kind of natural in Top Gun. In here, it's—it's it's a forced thing. The the um the grabbing of the dicks for the the chant. This is my rifle. This is my gun. It's quite deliberate here, this sexualization. So it's not. Yeah, I don't, I don't really see the in comparison. I, I think, way. in the sense that they're using adolescent uh, lust and those feelings and channeling that into something violent mm. is the is a similar thing. But you're right. I think it's more. It's like overt here, but it's more undercover in Top Gun, like somehow. Yeah. Uh, but I, I just wanted to go back to Mickey Mouse because uh, th- there's this theory that Mi- the Mickey Mouse Club is America, it, yeah, and it's yeah. like a phony show for, for a phony war, and uh, um, this pack mentality, all becoming, all belonging to a club, and the uniformity of that, and the way that we're indoctrinated by things, even TV, um, and the, the, I, I wasn't aware of the show, like because we didn't. I don't think we have the um, the Mickey Mouse Club in 
in England. But the, the my only association with it is it's the the, the Ryan Gosling. Yeah, it's it's a real uh, Justin Timberlake, Britney Spears, Spears yeah. yeah, Christina. All those guys were did the later episodes of it and the later series mm-hmm. of it. But again, it's it's about them returning to to being boys, mm-hmm. like turning. Uh, somebody said turning a childlike innocence into the grotesque, which I quite like. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And the sense that somehow, uh, one way or another, they've been training for this their whole lives, um, e- even throughout their their childhood, watching these mm-hmm. these shows. They've been kind of it's all brought them towards this moment, and they're all uh, marching through these fiery this fiery rubble together singing this happy song it's just very it's very kubrick and very peculiar i guess it's and uh, the, the great american capitalist success story as well isn't it yeah like going from one place to another join our club do it our way or else you know it's very for an, you can read it that for way an imperialist war that that was largely at least at the time framed as a as a conflict between uh capitalism and communism here's cap yeah and like the, the wars that followed too like kubrick uh, I think was giving us a warning that I've got some more of it in my conclusion, but there's the, it's about this film being a warning for the future and how we can't keep repeating the mistakes that we're making. He was a very logical man. And I think he, um, there's a story about Napoleon. He was obsessed with Napoleon. He tried to make a film about him and Napoleon mm. was a man who, who made all of his mistakes when he, he based his decisions on emotion and that influenced Kubrick. Who's this chess genius, and he just has this very logical way of doing everything. He never wants to make a mistake. And there's some messages in The Shining too, relating to uh, p- perhaps the Holocaust or like the the massacre of uh, Native Americans and things like that. And also they go into it about the moon landing as well, which um, Leon Vitali has has denied. Um, and I'm with Leon yeah. Vitali on anything he says. So um, yeah, it's all, it's all kind of related to that um, warning of not repeating the mistakes of the past. Well, and that, and that, that feeds into that allegory of the film, not necessarily being about Vietnam, but about war itself and, and the warning signs and what we, what, what we do to our, our own in order to get them primed to fight in these wars and uh and before we get into kubrick and what we think of him and the first half of the film uh and some of the performances um i wanted to just uh linger on the second part because one of the things i did notice and i didn't know if you guys had um had kind of locked in on it is uh matt you mentioned about the visual symmetry that kubrick employs in the first half what i really found to be fascinating is I saw some of the Steadicam stuff in the second half as like the early prototype of what Spielberg then later does on the Omaha beach sequences in Saving Private Ryan. You know, when they're following the soldiers as they're advancing. Oh, I also saw a bit of 1917 in that as well, Kelly. Yeah, no, well, uh, I have my opinions on 1917 because I'm not a fan. Um, but the, the actual, the camera work where he, it's almost like a document Terry style mm. i was like well this is the this is what spielberg's watched this and gone right how do i take this one step further because kubrick's absolutely employed it there when they're following the soldiers one by one it also reminded me of like paul greengrass with green zone and obviously just his normal shaky cam style i don't know what you guys thought but for those people that don't like that second part and think it's slightly derivative and unoriginal go back and watch those sequences again and you you will see kubrick's like again pioneering a different way of shooting these war films yeah and matt you you mentioned it before 
before that they were in, I mean, this is, this is not Vietnam. This is London. When I, when I explained it to Danielle, we watched it last night. Uh, she was gobsmacked. She was like, what? I was like, yeah, that's, that's all London. Um, I think it, I think it looks incredible. Yeah, a lot of it was shot at Millennium Mills. The vast majority uh, yeah, of it is, uh, uh, is like it's about two uh, miles away from me. Beckton Gasworks out this place. Really? Beckton? Yeah, Beckton Gasworks was like a disused place and, and they uh, they were dynamiting it because I think the idea behind it was Kubrick doesn't fly, so um, that's out. So they found the architecture that was similar and then they painted to, to the French architecture in vietnam and then they painted it did you so was it the, the the case that there was the same school of architecture right that that was building these industrial zones in vietnam and it was like basically the same type of architecture was was in the industrial zones of like the docklands of east london that's <laughs> right right yeah I, I guess so i heard that it was it was french influenced yes, yeah. somehow um and how interesting to see a vietnam film that's not it's just just set in the jungle. Well, yeah, that really makes it stand out. And and even the other stuff, the RAF uh, Bassingbourne was where the uh, where all the recruit stuff was was shot. Uh, and the, what what he really did was he brought in these big containers. If you look in the backgrounds of a lot of the shots, you've got these big, colourful mm. shipping containers. Um, and you've also got a lot of smoke, a lot of red smoke, a lot of black smoke. And then you've got the palm trees, which really sell it. When, when my girlfriend Shen watched it, she, she said, well, how did you make it have a, a tropical kind of a vibe? Yeah. Cause it looks hot. Yeah. And I think the, the palm trees are really what does it because it's, we, we know we don't have them in England. So it really clicks with us. It's, it really shifts your mind to, to another place. This, I, I didn't want to get into to, too much like, uh, uh, trivia stuff just because i don't really know it and i didn't want to look it up because i know that matt this is a film that you've looked into a lot more but uh i did hear that uh i i know you'd, you've read the um the diaries matthew modine's uh yeah yeah oh that's excellent can we just mention we should plug that anyone who's a fan or or wants to kind of learn more about it matthew modine's full metal jacket diary yeah. has an app on the ipad which is fantastic it has all of his uh rolly flex pictures yeah. that he took on set and there's an audio book too that is that is excellent right because um, i'd heard that he'd said um that it was like the most uh disgusting like they were all just like uh, uh, being infected with all these horrible chemicals because, like, obviously, Beckton Gasworks was just um, was was a work was up until very recently a working gasworks that they just smashed down uh, with a. Well, the asbestos is a problem. Um, it's a toxic thing that we used to use for fireproofing in buildings, yeah. I think, and uh, it's it's often too expensive to dismantle this this stuff. So um, it, when when they when they dynamite the buildings to bring them down on their sides to try and um, you know, get, get everything where it needs to be. Yeah. Um, this asbestos is just breaking loose and, uh, it's, it's everywhere. And he said that it was exacerbating it because they were bringing in these enormous gas heaters, like the kind of thing you'd see on the sidelines at NFL games in the winter. Yeah. To keep them warm during the filming. It's, it's nuts that, yeah, you're right. Like it did, they did yeah. manage to, without having to do something so cheap as like the, um, you know, the kind of the CSI Miami orange filter on everything to make it look a bit hot. Because uh, mm. it is like it's desaturated and it's miserable, but it, you wouldn't be able to tell that it was probably about eight degrees and fucking drizzle. Uh, Douglas Milsom, the the, the DOP, um, him and Kubrick. He, this was a strange one because uh, John Alcott was the director of photography on Kubrick's few films before this, and he didn't want to, for whatever reason, didn't want to do this one with Kubrick, and actually died 
during the filming, I think. So, um, uh, the, 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 the director of photography that he ended up working with, uh, Milsom, um, and him planned it. Originally, they were going to do 16 millimeter. They wanted it to be very muddy and, uh, almost like, um, uh, reported footage of, of the war. And then they, they chose to go with 35 millimeter and kind of, uh, again, muddy it up to a degree. So it looked a bit, a bit dirtier, but maybe that's to mask certain things as far as the location. They were worried about it and they were going to mask it. And then they realized that it looked so good that maybe they didn't need to, to do that so much. Um, and if you look at it on Blu-ray now, it, you, you can't really see any faults in it. Yeah. I, I love Matt that just a simple bit of set dressing that the, the palm trees completely sells it along with the cinematography. Um, I was really struck by how the film looks, actually. You mentioned uh, Douglas Wilson. I'm, I'm going to talk a bit about his son later. Uh, but there's this, like, I love some of the imagery. There, there's this beautiful uh, sunset s- shot when they're on the apparatus at the training ground. They're all silhouetted in orange kind of hue. The the tracking shots we've, we've mentioned in the latter mm-hmm. part in part, part two or whatever but the, the long takes that the is it emery's introduction to the film we track with him around the 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 barracks uh room when he's addressing all the new soldiers i i just love the camera work in this film mm-hmm. um and segue there mm-hmm. into emery and his performance uh is it is it emery i th- is is it um, Ermi, Ermi. Oh, I think it's Ermi. <laughs> it's okay. It's all right. Ermi. Yeah, I'm usually correcting Galley on his uh, mispronunciation of names, but Lee Ermi. He, how fucking good is he in this one? Oh, he's like a bolt of like lightning, as I said mm. earlier, just comes out of nowhere. And um, <laughs> so here's here's the thing, right? With his performance, um, I sent a link, a clip. So listeners. Um, Ollie Ermi, technical advisor on the film. I think Matt, uh, mentioned it earlier, kind of, um, got his, got his, uh, removed. I've removed, even written it down as Ermi. I've just pronounced it. <laughs> Why have I done that? Removed, uh, Sorry. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. You can listen, chastise yourself later. Uh, he, um, yeah, he, he removes the guy who was actually hired, who ends up being the, the, the main gunnery in the helicopter, uh, steals the show. And I, I, listen to an interview with him and um and this is where we do our referendum on kubrick because one of the things that we now when we discuss kubrick is his incessant need for perfection and actors being pushed to the extreme when it comes down to the amount of takes and lee ermy was saying like 30 40 takes every one of these trackings and he lost his voice and 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 kubrick was so demanding of him but not by saying like, do it, do it faster, do it quicker, you know, going all Lucas, just saying, do it again, just do it again. You know, not really giving him any direction, just saying, go again. Not that wasn't quite it right. Apparently Finch's like that as well. Yeah. Uh, mm. Army Hammer will tell you on, on the set of. Well, he'll, he'll, he'll tell me other things as well, won't he? Do you, do, <laughs> do you bugger. Um, but no, my, yeah. um, <laughs> sorry, uh, topical joke that he's a cannibal. in about a month's time. I don't, I, I don't believe a word of that, by the way, but, um, he, he has a really inter- interesting interview on, uh, social network where he's, he says to Fincher and he notes, he's like, no, just do it again. And he did it. But uh, Finch is a very big believer of just 
if you're going to spend, if you've got the money in making a film, spend the time on it. And I imagine Kubrick, Kubrick was the same. Yeah. Same. So, so I asked you guys, does, does the means justify the end? And I, and I coax that in Matt's favorite film and Shelley Duvall's performance in The Shining, because that's what a lot of people now, like modern day film critics and people that love cinephiles, they look at Kubrick as a, an abuser of uh of his of his actors as opposed to somebody who got the best out of them so what do, what do we think because Leomi in this film i think is um is an example of 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 what you can get when you keep uh you know aiming for perfection i guess i've got a quote from kubrick on Leomi. he said uh, lee averaged eight or nine takes he sometimes did it in three because he was prepared um you know in the full metal jacket diary that we mentioned um, Matthew Modine talks about, um, Kubrick's reasoning for doing so many takes. And he says, actors don't know their lines. And he, he came to the conclusion that Kubrick wasn't just talking about knowing the words of the lines. It was knowing the meaning behind it, what they were doing, um, uh, with the performance too. It wasn't just about knowing the words of what they were saying. It was how they were doing it. Um, and, Somebody there mentioned a piece of, uh, oh, you Patrick with Finch's direction. I've got my top five Kubrick lines of direction here, if you want. Um, first one was, uh, well, one wasn't really a line. Oh yeah, it was. Um, after the, the, the bathroom scene, um, with Vincent D'Onofrio as, as pile, uh, they were watching the, the monitors back together, D'Onofrio and Kubrick and Kubrick squeezed his hand and said, that is incredible work. And I love that one because that's something you don't usually hear from, from Kubrick. Uh, and these are, these are the other ones that I got. Be brilliant was one piece of direction he gave. Um, somebody said, I think it was animal mother. Um, uh, I don't know what he wants. I don't know what he wants from me. He had a bit of an outburst one day and Kubrick just, uh, looked away from his viewfinder and said, how about better acting? <laughs> uh, that was one of them. And, uh, <laughs> Another one was look really scared, which is from the George Lucas, uh, yeah. uh school of directing, I think. And then, uh, another one was, uh, Matthew, you're not going to do it that way. Are you? That's what he'd <laughs> say to him quite often. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, they're, they're all from, um, Modine's diary, little things that he would say. So yeah, uh, I, you know, I, I think what you're saying, Gally is, is really interesting separating the man from you know, the craziness from how he directs as well. I, I don't think you can justify spending months on that wall before Animal Mother runs in. And I don't mm. think you can justify spending months on the um, motorcycle hooker scene either because that looks like an afternoon or, or two days of shooting, mm. like a, 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 yeah. the most. But, um, yeah, I don't know. So how much does uh, Leon Vitale help? With these Leon Vitale is the guy behind the guy, as they would say in Swingers. He's... Uh, you know, he, he did all of the casting, um, all these tapes, the stories about the, the VHS tapes that were sent from just about every actor in the universe sent their tapes and Kubrick didn't really watch a lot of them. He used them to tape NFL, uh, games. He, he, he'd ship them back to his mum who would tape NFL games and then send them, like courier them back to him in England so he could watch all of the, uh, all the sports games from New York that he was ob obsessed with. But, um, yeah, Leon Vitale did all that. He, he also did all of the Foley on the movie. Um, every time you hear a gun clink or a, or a hooker's footstep, it's Leon Vitale. 
And uh, if, if you're interested in, in Leon and, and what he did, uh, have a look at the film worker documentary that they, they made about him. He was more than just an assistant. He was like this indispensable guy um, behind Kubrick. He helped him with everything. He's more than just an assistant. I must admit, that's the first time I've ever heard his name. Ah, well, he, he played an he, he's an actor originally. He he played yeah. uh, a part in Barry Lyndon, and okay. uh, he became obsessed with the filmmaking process and um, uh, well interested in it at first, particularly the editing. He spent a lot of time in edit rooms, and then. Um, Kubrick hired him on to go and find the kid who plays Danny in The Shining, and he he went looking for a, a, an actor who could play that that role, and he worked very closely with um, with him. So yeah, it, and eventually he just did everything. He he, he controlled, um, uh, particularly after Kubrick's death as well. Um, looked after the the the, the cuts of the films and um, uh, remastering and and things like that wow. for Blu-ray and. It, the way we're seeing the films now uh, is the way Kubrick envisioned. If we are seeing them that way, then it's thanks to Leon Vitali, who's mm. who's managed to to keep them looking the way that Kubrick wanted. Everything from color timing to posters and everything. He, he's watched the documentary would you, film. Would film he have one. been involved in the uh, in the big exhibition that they did at the Design Museum as well? Sadly, they snubbed him. The one man that they should have oh. included, they snubbed him. He wasn't even invited to the premiere, but there's a lovely part in the documentary where he takes people around the exhibition for free. They heard that he was doing it and uh, he'd take groups of five people and just talk to them about Kubrick and it's yeah. fascinating, really. There's this guy who knows everything and wasn't included in the in the prep for it. Um, because the, yeah. the 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 uh, the the show was was incredible, and and being some, uh, uh, someone who's not maybe as familiar with Kubrick's films as I should have been, I found obviously it utterly fascinating and and you know really impressive to see the uh, the scale of the um, preparation that he does. And like we were saying about being able to turn a gas works in the Docklands into a bombed city in Vietnam or being able to turn, I think it's Commercial Road up in mm-hmm. uh, Whitechapel. He turned it into Manhattan, which is just incredible. Oh, that's right. I talked to you before about the, the doorway for Eyes Wide Shut. He wanted a hooker's doorway, I think. And uh, he just had a guy on a um, stepladder photographing every single one. And they had these box files, these massive box files just of doors. Yeah. And uh, he ended up shooting it on a studio after all of that. They ended up just building it and, uh, and shooting it on a set. There's 35 millimeter photographs, like, you know, as in just like probably done 24 hours at Boots, you know, from the little uh, thing. And uh, in the exhibition, they're thumbtacked to a wall. And you see that he's taken a single photograph at every building. And then to make a panorama them, of it. And they piece them together. It's the entire street. Yeah. It's outrageous. Yeah. We're mm. talking of like Kubrick's, uh, how do I describe it? He's a fussy the customer, they call him. <laughs> I, I couldn't find the story. I was trying to remember who told me it or where I read it originally, but in Full Metal Jacket, apparently there's a sequence uh, of bullets hitting a wall and, you know, the SFX department set it up showed him and it was like no and uh, matt you may be more familiar with this but it, it took them weeks to just to reset the squibs when animal mother war. runs in could could be that yeah oh is it that that's the secret right okay and he just wasn't happy with yeah they're like right and they'd film it of course like his bullets hitting the wall like no do it again i didn't like the sequence mm-hmm. of the bullets hit. Right. i mean devlin what do you think because we've because we've talked over, about yeah. Kubrick's I, I can't remember what episode but we talked about directors trying to imitate 
this this director that's been in my it in, I'm not, I can't even think it was in Cameron or, maybe on Aliens. Yeah, know. just the idea of like these perfectionists, and now in a in a in a period of time where we have the Me Too movement, and we have um, you know more and more stories of kind of abuse on sets. And Patrick, you might be able to shed some light, although be careful. Um, disclaimers, obviously, but the the idea that you know someone like Kubrick now he couldn't get away with that but does it justify does do the means justify the ends because i'm going to use Ali Ermi's performance so in seven no nine years earlier he's in a film called the the boys from c company which i'd never even heard of until matt picked this film because i was just diving in and there's a clip on youtube and i'm going to play it now and we've all listened to it and it's him doing the same role he's a drill instructor he's got some funny lines he's chastising the recruits just listen to the difference. When you are told to do so, you will reach down by your right foot, pick up your bags, empty the contents on the table in front of you. You will empty your pockets and place the contents of your pockets on the table in front of you. Do it now! How do you get in your back pocket? A band. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. Look your out of your pocket. Oh, nice. Technicolor rubber. I'll bet you're a virgin, aren't you? I lost it when I was 13. What? I lost it when I was 13, sir! Now, let's listen to Ollie Ermey in Full Metal Jacket, prepared with, you know, yes, there's nine years removed, so maybe he's a better actor, but also, what is he being told by the director in order to do? Listen to his cadence, listen to his rhythms. It's way more impactful. You little scumbag! I got your name! I got your ass! You will not laugh! You will not cry! You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Now get up. Get on your feet. You had best unfuck yourself or I will unscrew your head and check down your neck. My understanding is like Kubrick kind of heard Emery, Ermy, excuse me, <laughs> and essentially threw out the scripts and just told him to do what he wanted. Well, yeah, that's the kind of, that's the myth behind it. The, the truth, I think, as far as I can tell, is that they, uh, Kubrick had a dictaphone and Ermy was just um, really adept at spouting this stuff. Uh, he, he said once that, um, a good drill instructor should be like a stand-up comedian. And that kind of plays into the first half of the film. It's really hilariously funny at times. Like I told you on the chat, like when he says about him being a slimy warus, get the fuck off of my obstacle. I'm, I'm crying <laughs> at that point. That's so funny. And, uh, but it's awful at the same time, knowing what happens still, I still laugh. And, uh, he dictaphone, taped him uh doing all of this and that they think probably 50 percent of what ermy said was scripted and from the short timers and stuff like that and then the other 50 was um what was improvised initially and then incorporated into the script um by kubrick based on what ermy ermy did behind the scenes because he was really training the, the the recruits there he was really it, him, him and, uh, Leon Vitali were, uh, Leon Vitali was, was basically an acting coach for everyone too. They, he, he spent time with the actors and when the, when he was drilling all the Marines, the, the tapes were eventually sent to Kubrick and Ermi knew this. Like as soon as Kubrick saw the tapes with him on, uh, he wasn't going to settle for the other actor. He's got, he was going to want the real thing. So Ermi says it was planned all along. Uh, that's how he got, got the part. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the story behind it. 
So it's it's improv, but it's improv within the very strict rules of what he's not going to let him go out there and app it. You, you don't say <laughs> say anything that hasn't been prior approved on a Kubrick film. You have to, it has to be incorporated into the script first and go through all the drafts and all that stuff. So I had something that kind of sums up the the Kubrick thing you were talking about. Um, it's a chess analogy. Um, he used to use chess to help figure out people that he was working with and he'd, he'd figure out how you attacked and how you defended and he'd, he'd learn about kind of uh, the kind of person you were. So this is a quote from Stanley Kubrick from a 1987 Rolling Stone article. He says, uh, you'll see a grandmaster. The guy has three minutes on the clock and 10 moves left and he'll spend two minutes on one move because he knows that if he doesn't get that one right, the game will be lost. And then he makes the last nine moves in a minute. So that, that's less about like the way he treats Shelley Duvall or whoever and more about the time he spends on the scenes that we were, we were talking about. And is it ever justified to work in that kind of a finicky way? It's like the really important stuff that he needs to nail. He'll take the time to do it. And sometimes it's one, like when they killed the sniper, it was one take. Um, as far as I know, when, um, Pyle shoots himself, it was one take. Um, so it, it happens like Lee Ermey was nailing it in two or three takes sometimes. So some of it's mythological. It's become this big thing, but some of it's true. Like he did 30 something on, on Ermey once. I think it was a jelly donut scene, the 37 or something like that on the jelly donut bit. And, and, and there's your other, there's your other star performer, which again, probably speaks to why people are, are so enamored by the first 45 minutes of the film. I didn't even realise this was Vincent D'Onofrio's first ever screen appearance. He's fucking awesome. Yeah. In- incredible. Can you think about what he's got to do in 45 minutes? He's got a, he's got a whole arc with no backstory and, and, and virtually no lines. And he's got to, he's got to make it believable that, that this recruit process is going to turn what is an innocent looking, podgy, slightly out of his depth, uh, individual into a killer who, who you can believe does what he does by the end of his, uh, his arc. Incredible. Incredible. I can't believe he didn't get nominated. I mean, that's unbelievable to me. Well, he was recommended by Matthew Modine, uh, who I think they auditioned together for the film private school. Um, and, uh, which also had Phoebe Cates in, which is the only reason I've seen it. And, uh, the, the, <laughs> the pile, um, Vincent D'Onofrio said that, um, he played it in the way like that the wires got crossed. They made a monster instead of a soldier. And, uh, Kubrick directed him to play the suicide scene in particular as, and, and the lead up to it uh, as a Lon Chaney big. Uh, he said, I want, I want it to be Lon Chaney big. So, um, he studied all of those films. He had, he had Godzilla and King Kong and then he had all the Lon Chaney stuff. Um, and, Another note I found was that he used a nursery rhyme. Uh, he used to sing three blind mice in his head in a very dark, slow, constant re- repetition. Um, and, and when you watch the film, whenever I watch it now, like you can, you can kind of imagine what he's doing in his own mind, um, with this to get this very strange tone. Um, and there's another interesting thing where he said when they were composing one of the shots of him, he knew that he was in, he was getting that Kubrick treatment because if you look at the shining, there's some stuff of Jack with his head down and his eyes up and there's some stuff Mm. of Malcolm McDowell doing the same Mm. kind of composition. And when Kubrick was composing that shot of him, he thought, this is it. I'm, I'm getting the Kubrick 
shot where I'm the glare. He's get he's getting that hmm. from me. He gets it by like keeping the actor's head in a certain place. And then, do, do you think that's a thousand yards? Well, yeah, absolutely, isn't it? It's the push in when he does the slow push in, and he's uh, I can't remember. They talking about a marine and their rifle, what he can do. Talks about Lee RV Oswald, and he just pushes in on right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one's the yeah. That one's definitely the thousand yards there. But I think. Matt, is this the, uh, it's the other thing, right? It's the kind of, he's become yeah. something else. It's like the, the monster transformation more so than just being like a killer or a, or a, a soldier or yeah, the, there's, who's lost their humanity. There's two or three in the film that it like, could be that he's referring to. I think you, you could be right. It's the one where they're on the bleachers and, uh, there was another take he talks about where he had a wet towel over his head. So all the others just look the same. But he has this towel over his head, but for some reason Kubrick yeah. didn't use it and he just used this one with the, with the stare. D'Onofrio is amazing in this, but also his character is amazing. I do see the similarities in Animal Mother later and what probably Pyle could have become like the ultimate Hollywood hero, uh, like soldier. But I also saw Galley, uh, like Forrest Gump being influenced by this, uh, with, with Pyle. But uh, but uh, I just love the simplicity of when uh, Hartman asks Joker what's what's rule six yeah. or something, and then he can't answer it. And you know, Joker is the, the the smart, educated. Like you think he'd be a good soldier, but then um, Pyle is able to answer the questions, and he's, he becomes a good soldier. Hartman congratulates him on his shooting. All this development in these forty five minutes, and then when. Um, Post the soap beating when Pyle, when D'Onofrio, uh, he, he doesn't read back the, the, the chants in the, in the line. Uh, I, your friend, Matt, um, Mr. Ebert, um, your best mate, he, he criticized it for it, saying that it was kind of postage stamped, um, his d- d- demise and, you know, he has the crazy eyes and starts to, he, he said he knew it was predictable of what, um, pile was going to do and and become i I didn't see it that way at all i i I, i'm still very shocked about what happens in the bathroom and i didn't quite uh i I don't see that as a criticism Mm. so you know your your mate again i got i got a lot of love for roger but i must admit largely because of his work as a moonlighting screenwriter for (laughs) (laughs) i just think that's brilliant brilliant little career for him but um did uh, patrick you're saying um uh, Forrest Gump, and I was just thinking, did anyone else read the early uh, appearances of of Private Pyle or Leonard, as we should probably call him, as a man with uh, with an actual learning disability? Yeah, he can't control his facial expression; he can't stop smiling. Yeah, there's a bit when Joker takes him under his wing and he's teaching him the uh, left shoulder hurt, and he's smiling, yeah. you know, getting it right, and he, mm. he is someone who's craving. Uh, proper leadership and attention and, and teaching. Um, I read it as more childlike, but I, th- I think you're right. I think there could, there could be a learning difficulty. Yeah. There. It could, yeah. could just be another layer that you can read. It. And that, and that's the bit where you're conflicted when you're watching this again, because the line that Hartman says, the first line he says, which is a funny line, but now in the context of what Devlin's saying with a potential learning difficulty, when he says, did your parents have any children that lived? Which, as a, as a, as a line is like, oh, brutal, kind of darkly, like funny. 
But yeah, when you see what happens to Pyle, and the other thing as well that I found really fascinating is Hartman doesn't really give him any support apart from when he does the shooting. And there's a little moment when he says, uh, you made it. It's like, if he just, he, he yeah, clearly victimizes, he victimizes Pyle the whole way through because there's a bit where Cowboy has a shotgun and he's like, it's not your daddy's shotgun. Joker, um, can't remember what Joker does something wrong. And he just says, you scumbag, but doesn't really Do you love the Virgin it. Mary. Maybe that. Yeah. But, but every time Pyle messes mm. up, it's like, no, you're the one, you're the weakest. And I'm going to absolutely victimize you. And well, uh, that's the tragedy of it. As soon as he's been trained to do what he needs to do, those like D'Onofrio said, those wires are crossed and it, it, there's no way back from it. And he destroys his creator in the, in that bathroom. And it's, uh, it's very poetic kind of enter but it's very disturbing you know what i didn't find very kubrickian i thought it was kind of against who Stanley kubrick is is a very nailed on comment about uh joker when he has the peace symbol and the born to kill on his helmet and what officer uh general superior says to him what are you trying to say and the duality of man i thought it was a very deliberate part of the script and, and the film there that I, I'd expect, I thought was a little too deliberate for Kubrick. I, th- I think Kubrick's a, bit, a little not so, uh, understanding of an audience is, uh, need, need to understand. Um, and, but the duality throughout the film, I, I think is astonishing actually. Um, and the second part is living with me a lot more now. Marine, what is that button on your body armor? A peace symbol, sir. Where'd you get it? I don't remember, sir. What is that you've got written on your helmet? Born to kill, sir. You write born to kill on your helmet and you wear a peace button. What's that supposed to be? Some kind of sick joke? No, sir. What is it supposed to mean? I don't know, sir. You don't know very much, do you? No, sir. You better get your head and your ass wired together or I will take a giant shit on you. Yes, sir. Now answer my question or you'll be standing tall before the man. I think I was trying to suggest something about the duality of man, sir. The what? The duality of man, the Jungian thing, sir. I liked about the delivery of the line though is that he says something to do with or like something about the duality. It's like he's a, he's he's a cheeky bastard as well. He's just cheeky, all. and and the thing about him being Joker, first of all, and having yeah. that smirk and that grin, and having all the wisecracks, is that it makes the ending mm-hmm. um, even more poignant, just visually, because when we see him at the end, I think it's the best thing Modine's ever done. That one shot, and he, he looks like. Yeah, when he, when well, he kills he shoots, the, sni- the sniper, the, mer- the, you know, for want of a better word, mercy killing. Um, when it, when it happens, he looks like a different man, like in that, in that shot. And it's a very cool thing that I've found that happens when he's aiming to shoot her. The, the, the part of his jacket kind of opens up and begins to cover the peace symbol. And, uh, as, as he's aiming, oh, just right. as he's about to do it, the split second that he fires, uh, the peace symbol is completely covered by the jacket. So it, no it, fucking it, it's way. Too, it's got to be deliberate. Isn't it's it? too neat to be <laughs> an accident. It looks too neat to be an accident, but who knows? It's a Kubrick film. We're, we're led to believe that everything is intentional. Maybe it's a happy accident, but if it is, it's just a really, really neat one. And the other, and the other duality is, you know, what's, uh, what's private piles virtually his last statement is i am in a world of shit and that's what joker says at the end but he says i'm in a world of shit but i what does he say i'm alive and i have no fear yeah that's it 
That's it. That's the that's the difference. Hardcore man, yeah, <laughs> fucking hardcore. Can I can I just say just to bring some levity, Matthew Modine's career obviously quite a strange career because he's been in some big films. I'm thinking Cutthroat Island, which probably didn't help him, but. I um I, I like to think <laughs> that, that have you have any of you seen Fluke? Because I have told Devlin about this film no. so many times. So Matthew Modine is in it, and listeners, if you've never seen it, and I might even at him to see if he'll um respond <laughs> because I doubt anybody. I loved you in a Fluke. <laughs> I loved you in Fluke. So Fluke is uh, a story about reincarnation. Uh, a, fa- a father of a loving family dies in a car accident and is reincarnated as a dog and it's Matthew Modine who was reincarnated as a dog and it's right. Eric Stoltz who's his best mate who he then thinks killed him on purpose to get with his family but then learns through being a dog that Eric Stoltz was actually just trying to help him all along fluke wow. so there you go just just thought I'd just mention it because I'm not going to get another chance y- younger people might know him from Stranger Things more recently uh, as Papa yeah, yeah. Yeah, and no, Dark Knight Rises. Um, yeah, weird, weird. Just like I, I, you've got to assume that. Yeah, you've got to assume that Nolan just went. Well, Kubrick's my favorite filmmaker, so I'll just get Matthew Modine to do this this role. I'd imagine that was about as far as it went. Yeah. Um, back to Patrick's point about um, Pyle and Animal Mother and uh, the the duality of man. Um, that somebody broke it down quite neatly. They said that it's about the personal unconscious, which is our uh, our thoughts. And the collective unconscious, which is to do with primal images that are found in all of humanity. So that, like, we've got this idea that, um, maybe animal mother is the, is what Pyle would have become, uh, if he, if he'd gone out into the field mm-hmm. and from Joker, from meeting him later mm-hmm. and interacting with him, it's, it's all tied into, um, the two characters becoming representative, like the, the shadow of, of, uh, of the other. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I loved about the film watching it this time was how, how we are always just one step removed from the action. We are sort of observing everything that's going on, but not from a perspective that the, the director is saying, now you are to feel this and you are to think that. It, it, he leaves it very much open. Events transpire and we are left to sort of wonder what we think about it, not what Kubrick is telling us to think about it. I, I, th- I think so too, Gally. And, and on that, um, we've spoken offline, Devlin. It, you have a little bit of a impatience with war films now. Uh, I, it's, it's all, it's all tied up with a whole bunch of different stuff as a, as a, a, a confirmed coward. And, uh, I would like to say that, you know, it's, it's, uh, ingrained pacifism and stuff. It's, it's, it's not so much about that, but I guess it kind of is. It's when we talk about the idea of the military entertainment complex, and it's not that I'm through with war films. I'm just I'm I'm skeptical of the fascination with it, even though I understand why filmmakers would be drawn to it because it's everything that a film would need without having to dig too far in. So I mean, you have you know life and death hatred you know uh camaraderie you have all these different kind of things it's all really like super obvious stuff that of course it lends itself to the cinema screen really easily i just feel like it's maybe not always wielded with the great amount of uh responsibility and that there are so many war films uh of of a vast spectrum that I'm just, it was more a case of in the last couple of years, there was, you know, there was even more of them and they're very prestigious. There's, you know, you had like Dunkirk, mm-hmm. 
everyone said it's, it's a remarkable piece of filmmaking. I've not seen it. I just don't have the impetus to. I saw 1917 and I really did not particularly like it. Wow. Uh, even though it's technically very impressive, I, I just felt it was, uh, I did not find it. I, I didn't find it engaging. I just, I felt like uncomfortable. It's a video game, it. 1917. I, I, yeah. I really didn't like it and at I, all. It's, it's the idea that like, you can't, you can't be too critical of it because then you imagine what right, those young right. lads went through and it's like, yeah, they did. Pass all that up and say like, just because the first world war was clearly a hellscape doesn't mean I have to appreciate. I mean, if anything, isn't it a bit kind of, ghoulish to rake it over the coals so much and turn it into an entertainment for profit that's maybe a feeling that whereas so i was a little uh yeah a little skeptical coming into this one and i without wanting to step too much on my conclusion i will say that this was a very different feeling matt normally the the rule of thumb is to go around the room but as you are the scholar of Kubrick, I think we should start with you. So, final thoughts on Full Metal Jacket, and uh, here's a tough one to to try and package. Do you recommend it to our listeners, and when should they watch it? Which is a, an interesting one. <laughs> uh, okay, well, we'll start with Kubrick. Uh, it's it's car waxing time. Um, his car's probably overly waxed already, <laughs> but I'm just going to buff buff his bumpers a bit. Um, I I think I think he's the best ever. I, I don't think there's anyone even close to him, actually. It's, it, for me, it's not even a debate as far as filmmakers go. Um, I, I just think he's the best there ever will be. And it's not, it's not completely because of his own talent. It's, it's because of, um, I, I think there, there are other great filmmakers, even genius filmmakers. I just don't think that they're going to be given the, the, the freedom and, and the circumstances aren't going to be the same. Uh, as the freedom that he found or earned or just took for himself is, is very hard to replicate the, the modern equivalent you could argue. Um, I, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue it, but, um, we mentioned Nolan before, um, is, is someone who does things on his own terms, but it's not to the degree that, that, you know, Kubrick he's still got does, commercial, uh, responsibilities to adhere to, hasn't he? He does. I mean, uh, Kubrick didn't give interviews. This led to his, the, the mythos surrounding him. Like he, he did some interviews. I, I made a playlist that we'll probably put in the show notes at some point on the site, but, um, there's some good audio interviews with him. And one video just says every piece of video footage of Kubrick that exists and it's 20 minutes long. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, the mystique around him it builds you know, what he does. Like uh, Scorsese gave a really nice quote. Um, One of Kubrick's films is like 10 from another director. And um, from, from the amount of the sheer amount of notes that I've got here that, that I'll never ever get through. Um, uh, It's just, this film can be analyzed for, for a long, long time. Like there's this other thing about Kubrick that he lets everyone else make their films and then he comes in and tops them. And, that's not entirely true. I think that this one, he, he wanted to make since 1980 and it just takes him so long. We discussed the doors in um, Eyes Wide Shut, you know, and how long the prep takes. And he just doesn't, it, it takes him so long to do it. And that was a, a source of frustration for him. It, it happened with his um, a Holocaust movie as well, the Aryan, Aryan Papers, I think. And um, Spielberg went and made Schindler's List in the time that, that Kubrick took to just prep it. And, and by the end of it, he just didn't, didn't get round to it. So uh, onto the film, uh, it's a huge recommendation. 
I think the more you analyze it and look at it, uh, there's more to think about. It's visually brilliant. It's, it's, a it has this sickening kind of pornographic screenplay that's very intense, but funny. And, uh, and I've got this odd preoccupation with it. I've seen it so many times, like The Shining. It gives me this uneasy, queasy feeling. Uh, I don't, I don't know when you would watch it for fun. It makes me squirm and cringe. I like to watch this one on my own, actually. I, I don't like to watch this with anyone. It's not a guilty pleasure, but it is a guilty watch to some degree. I take things from it on, on some level. Um, and I've tried to get the bottom of it, to the bottom of it, but, um, I think it, it just speaks to you, uh, as an individual, like maybe you like it and maybe you don't. Um, the satirical side is a bit bothersome, uh, that the sick sense of humor is, is, it can distance you from it, but can also be the best thing about it. Um, it's like a car crash, really. It's hard to look away at times. Um, it's made in a way that, 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 that doesn't exist anymore. Um, I don't think films are made this way. Um, it's got themes that are sadly still very, re- uh, resonant today. Uh, this, it's about a future war and urban environment. Um, it's a, like we said before, it's a warning to us to not repeat the past. Uh, and I think it addresses all the modern issues of war and these never ending problems that we have with it and, and how as individuals we react to it. And, uh, hopefully it's not a film that we will need in the future, but I think we still need it now because there are lessons to be learned. And, um, yeah, so yeah, it's a tough watch, but it's, it's a, still a big recommend for me. And I, it's my second favorite Kubrick film after the shining and, uh, it's his penultimate one. So he'd learned a lot by this point. He was the master and, uh, yeah, watch everything he did, but you know, have, have a look at Full Metal Jacket if you haven't seen it. So I'll pass over to uh, uh, Patrick next. How about you, Patrick? Well, um, thanks for picking it, first and foremost. This is something that, I, I again, we've, we spoke about quite a few films that I've seen when I'm younger, and I'm always annoyed that I don't remember them more, or I didn't take them seriously enough, or I didn't pay attention properly when I was younger. Um Devil and I both spoke about part two, not really remembering it. And I was kind of blown away watching it the other day because I didn't realize how deep and how impressive this film was. Um, so from a recommendation point of view, yeah, absolutely. But multiple views, this film just gets better and better. It's a really deep, uh, unpacking of these sandwiches here because Every sandwich I ate in the film just tasted better. Um, and part two is really impressive to, to, to me. It was the duality of man theme. I think this is a really underrated Kubrick film. All the reviews I read are kind of lower on the ebb or low down on his list of best films, but I'm very much in agreement with you. I think this is kind of top tier Kubrick, to be honest. Um, I, I, apart from the, the, the peace button and the born to kill helmet, which I think was, I, I was a little jarred by it because I thought that was very un, uh, unkubrickian of him to be so on the nose. Yeah. It's fucking good film. Um, Gally, please. Oh, well, um, firstly, I'm just going to say this is why I love doing the show with you guys because, um, I very much would have put full metal jacket in the, 
exactly exactly as you described it, Patrick. Sort of lower tier Kubrick, slightly derivative second part with an absolute stellar first part in recruit training. Basically going uh, like Joker, sheep mentality with the general consensus. But actually going back, reevaluating this, being a bit older, being able to unpack some of it, although not not all of it. In fact, most of it I can't unpack because he was he's operating on a far higher intellectual level than I, um, I really, really did. Uh, enjoy is the wrong word. Uh, I'm not smart enough to come up with one uh, that's better than fascinated by this one. And it has sat with me all week and I've just been constantly pouring over every detail from the characters to the themes. You know, Patrick, you mentioned about the duality of man. I was also just looking at the production design and just thinking, who else is able to genuinely convince you of a completely exotic country and it's East London. Like, I don't think there's many other people. It's all in camera. There's no computer generated effects in this. Um, the, the steady cam work and the symmetry in the first part is just ridiculous. Like the, my favorite shot is pile eating a jelly donut with the Maldon press ups. And it's, you can see everybody in that shot. You just think, the amount of time, the painstaking detail that he's obviously going through in order to achieve that. But the effect is worth it because that is it. That sums up everything in that one image. Um, so yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I do, I do think people should go out and seek it out, ignore those reviews and, and try and, try and give the second part as, the same attention that you would the first. It hasn't got the same uh, strong performances. It's not as loud. But uh, to me, it's because you're conditioned to think of a Vietnam film as being jungle and being a certain color palette and the themes of being, uh, you know, a certain way, an objective to be met. The second part has no objective. They're meandering. And maybe that's a metaphor for Vietnam or all wars that they're kind of pointless. Um, so yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I will say this as my recommendation. Uh, I watched it last night, which was Saturday evening with Danielle. And as a palate cleanser, we watched The Exorcist straight after she was that bummed out. So, um, I don't know what that says, uh, about our tastes, but, um, yeah, not a Saturday night film. I think watch this on your own and, and then maybe bring someone else in who's also seen it and have a discussion like we have and that'll be the best way of experiencing it but yeah you mean you didn't watch hook no it's there are two there are now three films there are full metal jacket <laughs> there is hook and i can't remember the other one hard target was it i don't know <laughs> bad, bad boys, bad boys, bad boys for life, for life. <laughs> yeah yeah which is well it's all part of 2021 isn't it we're trying to be a you know all grown up and all grown up um so yeah uh, what about you, Devlin? Not really too much more to add, to be honest. Which, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, it's probably for the best. <laughs> it, it, in that, when I was watching the film, I I did have to psych myself up to watch it. It was not one that I was especially not to say that I wasn't looking forward to it because I knew I was going to find it interesting. But it's a difficult one to make yourself kind of get into. Um, and sometimes with the with the films that we that we pick here, I'm simultaneously Glad for the opportunity to reappraise something and a little bit bummed out that I have to actually watch it. <laughs> uh, so I just, um, and also I have a tendency to leave these things very late because I'm an idiot. So, uh, what I did was I, I managed to watch this like right at the start of the week, Tuesday night after work. I went straight in, 
I watched it on my own as well, Matt, as, and, and I think that was definitely the way to go on this because I really think that if you are waiting to see how someone else is going to react to it, it's going to, it's going to make everything even more awkward and more uncomfortable because so much of the film did kind of jar with me while I was watching it. There was loads of things that just kind of seemed really odd. Uh, I was, I had like all these, I spoke to Gally like the day after and I was like, why is Joker not actually that funny? <laughs> like he only had <laughs> a slightly shit John Wayne impression seems to be the, 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 the bounce. He's smarmy, isn't he? Yeah. He's, not, he's not really funny. It's like the bounds of his character is him saying, is that you, John Wayne? <laughs> <laughs> and he does it again later with Animal Mother. He does another John yeah. Wayne. He just, he's resting on that John Wayne impression too. And, and at the time I, I was, I was in there and I was thinking, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm really digging this. And then it just got its tentacles in and I could not stop thinking about it. And I, and I couldn't help but think that, yeah, all this stuff is perhaps we, um, we load so much onto Kubrick because of the mythos of Kubrick. And because of, like you say, he's one of those few directors who just seem to have genuine free reign to create what he wanted to create. And that's, that's, uh, uh, even for an author, that's, that's very, very rare. Um, so maybe we freight every single thing he ever does with an awful lot of meaning. And uh, it can be a fun game to determine whether or not that's actually what's happening. But it's one of, yeah. it's one of the very few fun games you can have while watching this film. <laughs> I think Rim 237 is the ridiculous yeah. example yeah. of what happens there. But if, if you know, 50% of that is true, then that's still admirable. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of it is intentional. It's just that it is the mythology of him has become this, this mm-hmm. huge thing. But it's, it's interesting. I, I, I kind of, I, to be honest, I'm very excited to read your um, your essay about this one as well, because uh, I, I get the impression that there's so much more to go and, having watched yeah. this film in so long and then only having like a few days, like I said, a few days to sit and think about it. Uh, I, I agree. I feel like this is a film that you could, you could write multiple theses on and there mm. will be various levels of, uh, of insightful and bullshitty and all of it would be fun to read. None. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. I, I was asked at the end of it, like, did I enjoy the film? Yeah. And I just said, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, because uh, yeah. I didn't feel that way at all. Um, yeah, it's very sobering. Yeah, it really is. Like I say, it, what what do you want from a film if it's always pure entertainment? Then probably avoid. But if it's uh, to be mm. challenged and to be, yeah, to to start to come up with your own conclusions and put yourself in those situations and ask those those big big existential questions, then uh, yeah, absolutely. Like watch this film because it will it'll live with you for a bit. Um, but not on a Saturday night, as I said. <laughs> yeah. Tuesday, six Tuesday. o'clock, straight after work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so Matt, where, where can, where can our listeners get a hold of Full Metal Jacket? First of all, the, the lucky Americans, uh, can currently enjoy it in its one, three, three, uh, aspect ratio, which is the preferred, uh, ratio of Kubrick. It's like a four by three more square image uh, without the cropping on the top and the bottom if they have hbo go or showtime you can currently watch it in full frame while it's and it's and somebody on twitter's theory is that it's a mistake and it should not be uploaded in that format so get it while you still can um uh, have a look at the blu-ray that's out there it's a great um transfer although it is the widescreen version uh our friends in uh, in england can get it on now tv and sky go and uh 
yeah, you can rent it just about everywhere in the usual places, Amazon, Google. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I bought the DVD, um, and, uh, cause it had a, a commentary and I will say this, I, I messaged Devlin because I misread the back. It said commentary with Adam Baldwin. And I just thought, what? The, only Adam Baldwin's doing the commentary. And then it's and the, not the, just the, him, the way yeah. that they formatted it. And then just below it's like Vincent D'Onofrio and Arlie Irby. I was like, Adam Baldwin's doing the whole commentary. Yeah. Like, what the <laughs> <laughs> uh, It'd be amazing. It'd be like the Christian Slater one yeah, on Robin like, Hood where he only talks on his What's he going to tell me about Gamergate? Like, I was just like. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, no, it's, uh, that's why I bought it. And it was a pretty interesting commentary. It's got a, uh, a prominent film critic on there. I can't remember his name, but he, uh, he illuminates some of the, some, yeah, no, it's not Dean Circus Fiscal. Uh, he illuminates <laughs> some of the deeper stuff that's going on there. So it's quite interesting. Well, um, the film was shot. The cinematographer is Douglas Milson. Uh, I just want to take this opportunity to talk about the Mark Milson Foundation. Um, Mark is Douglas's son. He was a camera operator I worked with on Sherlock a few years ago. Uh, he told me I look good on camera, which I'll always remember actually. Um, such a nice guy, very beloved in the film industry. Um, and sadly, uh, his life was taken from him on set from, um, uh, in, in, he was filming in Ghana and he was run over by Land Rover. It was a health and safety thing that went wrong, uh, an assessment that wasn't really ticked and a poor example of practice. Um, and the foundation is in, in loving memory to him. Uh, it, it enables people from obscure backgrounds to try and get into the industry. It looks at health and safety. It's a very important, uh, foundation that, um, that's been going since I think it's 2017, I think, uh, 2018. Um, shortly after. So I, I just talking of Douglas Milson in this film, I, I really wanted to, uh, to mention that because he was ace. Uh, he, he's very missed. Yeah. Oh, no, no, uh, thank you very much for that, Patrick. And we'll, uh, we'll put a link into the show notes. Uh, yes, please. So if, yeah. if, if people do want to uh, read up more, uh, on the foundation or make a donation, then, then they can. Um, I'll, I'll also, uh, I'll just say now, uh, we're not doing a, a throwback next listeners. We're, we're doing a listener pick. It's something that we've, we've, we've garnered enough that we now have listener picks, which is uh, another example of us uh, being all grown up and all grown up. Uh, so we will be doing um, Michael Bay's The Rock, which Matt, I think you would have picked anyway. <laughs> oh, I'm yeah, over the moon. Yeah. Thank you, whoever requested. Yeah, I thought you might be might be happy. Who, who picked it? Uh, it? His name. Yeah, no, it is a. It's picked from a chap called Lewis Norm, who is a regular listener. Um, so thank you, Lewis. Yeah, thank you, Lewis. Yeah, uh, I, one of us would have picked it, but it definitely would have been Matt. Uh, so yeah, we're back in. We're back into. <laughs> well, it was because of the whole Connery thing. I think it's it's the right time to do it, right? We have to kind of address the the loss of Sean. And, and who else but to follow up Kubrick, the Michael Bay, right? So um, it makes, makes right. total sense. One auteur to a, an auteur. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to end up having an epileptic fit from long steady cam shots to frenetic editing. <laughs> uh, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. So The Rock will be our, our next episode. Uh, and I also wanted to just say it's something that I'll, I'll now start doing. But if you enjoy the show, then please uh, like and subscribe. And if you really want to give us an extra... Uh, sort of we boost, uh, and get people to listen to the show, then please. Send us uh, money. Well, no, no, no. We don't, <laughs> we, we don't ask for money, do we? We do this, we do this, yeah, we, we do this for free, but, um, you know, please pen a little review 
um, because that's how we uh, that's how we get seen more by other people that are into movie podcasts. Because God knows there's not enough of those. Uh, so yeah, there we are. Um, we will say our goodbyes, then, chaps, shall we? Do, do you not want to know what my pick is for the next throwback? Oh, yes. Go on, then, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> Absolute professionals. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I'm going to go with a little bit, uh, more in recent times. Not, not, I, I, I criticized you, Gunny, for, um, picking something that wasn't available on VHS at the time. I'm going to 2007 and we're going to talk about the assassination of Jesse James. Fuck yeah. In our next, oh, yeah. uh, podcast, please. And thank you. The biggest, mm. greatest Jack Daniels advert ever. My God. <laughs> just, for, just the aesthetics, that's what I'm driving at. No, fantastic. Wow, what a choice. Okay. Well, um, yeah, I'll explain why when we talk about it. No, no, I don't think you need to, um, although that might be giving away a sandwich there with my oh, response. We, we're a grown-up podcast now, and I picked. A, I wanted to pick a grown-up film. Uh, uh, okay, well, there you go. Uh, I forgot to mention that we were doing Patrick's pick, so we will, uh, we'll, we'll say our goodbyes then, everybody. Um, it's the podcaster who's too buku for most. It's Gally in Glasgow signing out. Stay safe, everyone. Uh, and uh, I climb like old people fuck. It's definitely <laughs> I wouldn't shoot you. You're my favourite turd. It's Patrick from London. Four inches from your chest, pile. Four inches! I'm going to rotate back to the world now. It's Matt in South Korea. Oh, thank you very much, everyone, for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>